Talks from the National Archives. This talk, presented by Juliette Desplat, is called The Three Curses of Tutankhamun. It was recorded on Thursday the 30th of January 2020 at the National Archives, Kew. Welcome to the National Archives. I am delighted to introduce Dr. Juliette Deplat, our Head of Modern Overseas Intelligence and Security Records Team. Juliette completed her Master's Degree and PhD at the Sorbonne University Paris, studying Egyptology and the history of ideas, in particular Egyptian nationalism. She specialises in Middle Eastern history in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially looking at the development of national identities, international boundaries, and the interaction between politics, intelligence, and archaeology. Tonight, Juliet will recount the dramatic discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter in 1922, and discuss the terrible curses that were unleashed. Over to you, Juliet. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Thank you very much. Well, some of you may have seen the exhibition currently held at the Saatchi Gallery. If you haven't, I do encourage you to go. I know it's quite expensive, but it's well worth it. It's a fantastic gathering of about 150 objects from the tomb of Tutankhamun, some of which have never left Egypt before, and most of which will probably never leave Egypt again. Some of you may also remember the 1972 exhibition held at the British Museum, which was, by all accounts, absolutely fantastic. And well, tonight, I'd really like to talk about the... Well, I'd like to tell the story behind the discovery of these objects and more especially the uh, political implications of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun because I think that is quite important and that's also an aspect that is um, sadly lacking from these two exhibitions. So, it all started in the Valley of the King and this is the Valley of the Kings viewed from above, so as you can see, it's quite arid. Um, the Valley of the Kings is an absolutely mythical place. It's a magical place, but it's also one of the most, I don't know, remote, barren, and scorching hot, and frankly, rather unpleasant, or rather unpleasant places on Earth. This is the Valley of the Kings in 1922, and those of you who've been there can probably tell that it hasn't changed much since. And it is there that on the 4th of November 1922, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his wealthy patron, the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, made a discovery that echoed down the corridors of Egyptology. It was the discovery of the century, the discovery of a lifetime, the virtually intact tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, it was, the tomb was full of what has since been described as treasures. It was full of gold, and it was still containing the body of the boy king himself. And this came with a price, or rather three prices, the three curses of Tutankhamun. Overwhelming popularity, unstable politics, and lingering ancient dark magic, or the curse of the curse. Now, just before the First World War, American archaeologist Theodore Davis, who'd been digging in the Valley of the Kings for about 10 years, made a very definitive statement. The valley was exhausted, nothing at all remained to be found. But Carter, you see, had an obsession. He really wanted to find the tomb of a missing, rather obscure pharaoh 
Tutankhamun. At the time, very little was known about Tutankhamun, apart from the fact that he'd ruled as part of the 18th dynasty, so that's about 1550 to 1290 BC. Um, and he'd ruled as part of the 18th dynasty after um, Akhenaten and his queen Nefertiti. To be fair, we still don't know that much about his reign, and Thomas Hoving, a former director of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, once wrote that one might say with truth that the one outstanding feature of his life was that he died and was buried. <laughs> but a few objects bearing Tutankhamun's name had surfaced now and then, and Carter was convinced that the tomb couldn't be very far away. And they, they tried again and again to obtain the authorization to dig in the Valley of the Kings, but Theodore Davis, for some reason, was holding onto the permit. And then finally, they got the Grail in 1915, the authorization to excavate in the Valley of the Kings. Now, for all his faults, and by all accounts, he had many, many faults, Carter was extremely meticulous. So he started clearing the valley down to bedrock, his first serious season in the valley wasn't much of a season. Work started on the 1st of December 1917, and by its end on the 2nd of February 1918, the results were very disappointing, mostly inscribed Ostraker. So these are bits of pottery with um, inscriptions on them. Another very short campaign in 1919 only yielded the remains of foundation deposits, so again, not very interesting. During the summer of, 19, uh, of 1922, Carnarvon invited Carter to Highclere Castle of Downton Abbey fame um, to discuss the future. He was for giving up on the valley. Carter had come prepared and he made a passionate case for at least one last season in, in the valley. He could point out on the map, so this is the, the Valley of the Kings, um, he could point out on the map that small area that hadn't been cleared down to bedrock yet and was still encumbered with the remains of ancient huts just below the entrance to the tomb of Ramesses VI. And this, so this triangle between the tombs of Ramesses VI, Ramesses II and Remta had been left aside because work close to these much visited tombs would have been highly unpopular during the tourist season. And Carnarvon relented and Carter got his very last season in the valley. So Carter arrived in Luxor on the 27th of October 1922 and he brought with him a new and slightly unusual pet that he'd bought in Cairo, a canary bird in a gilded cage. Herbert Winlick of the Metropolitan Museum later described the scene. The guards and the rices greet him and right off when they see a golden bird, they say Mabrik is a bird of gold that will bring luck. This year we will find inshallah a tomb full of gold. And they started working in front of the tomb of Ramses VI. Um, they started work on the 1st of November 1922. By the evening of the 3rd of November, the huts, which dated from the 20th dynasty, so around 1190 to 1060 BC, um, the huts had been removed. On the 4th of November, at about 10 in the morning, the first traces of an entrance to a tomb were discovered. And Carter noted in his diary, first steps of tomb found. And you can see that he was really excited because instead of writing in very clear lines like he always did, he, write, he wrote right across the page, which is extremely rare for Howard Carter. And under the supervision of Reis Ahmed Grigar, the workmen, all of them Egyptian, um, 
excavated enough of the tomb to expose the upper part of a plastered and sealed doorway, bearing the seal of the royal necropolis, Anubis, uh, above nine prisoners, which symbolized the, um, the enemies of Egypt. And I Carter, so you can see here, he said, he noted in his diary that the seals were intact. Um, Carter drilled a hole in the corner of the wooden lintel and he saw that the passage beyond it was filled with stones and rubble, which seemed to indicate that the tomb hadn't been robbed and was still intact. And he wrote in his journal, it was a thrilling moment for an excavator, quite alone save his native staff of workmen, to suddenly find himself, after so many years of toilsome work, on the verge of what looked like a magnificent discovery, an untouched tomb. And he then sent Carnarvon <coughs> what may well be the most important telegram in the history of Egyptology. At last have made wonderful discovery in Valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival, congratulations. And with, I think, remarkable self-control, Carter refilled the stairway and started planning. So he cabled his friend Arthur Callender, who was excavating in Armand about 12 miles away, and asked for help. He, um, he really gathered the best team he could possibly have at the time. Philologist Alan Gardiner, so the, the guy in charge of any um, written material. Um, Egyptologists Arthur Mace, the deputy curator of Egyptian antiquities at the Met. Percy Newbery, who was uh, Carter's old mentor and who would most particularly look at textiles and botanical specimens. Um, James Breasted, who looked at seals. Uh, photographer Henry Burton, chemist Alfred Lucas, draftsmen Lindsay Hall and Walter Hauser, and of course Arthur Callender, who was in charge of all the technical aspects of the excavation. And by the time Carnarvon uh, and his daughter, Lady Evelyn, reached Luxor on the 23rd of November, everything was ready for them. When the stairway was cleared on <coughs> <coughs> on the 24th, the team uncovered seal impressions bearing the name of Tutankhamun. So by then it was pretty clear that the right tomb had been discovered. Less encouraging, though, were the signs of forced entry into the tomb. The rubble and chipping filling the passage showed definite signs of having been burrowed through on at least two occasions. But then on the other hand, because the seals were there and were intact, it was clear that the tomb hadn't been robbed since antiquity, so there was hope. Now I'm going to borrow Carter's words to tell you the rest, because, because it's always better when it's first hand. Slowly, desperately slowly, it seemed to us as we watched, the remains of the passage debris were removed until at last we had the hall door clear before us. The decisive moment had arrived. With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. Darkness and blank space, as far as an iron testing rod could reach, showed that whatever lay beyond was empty and not filled like the passage we'd just cleared. Candle tests were applied as a precaution against possible fall gases. And then, widening the hall a little, I inserted the candle and peered in. Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn and Callender standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict. At first, I could see nothing, the hot hair coming from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold, everywhere the glint of gold. When Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. 
The, the Griffith Institute in Oxford has done a wonderful job of um, colorizing the uh, pictures taken by Harry Burton. And then these give a very good idea of what the team found in the tomb. Um, sometimes, I've, sometimes it's a bit difficult to, um, to imagine it from the black and white pictures, even though the, the photographs are amazing. But I think in color, it really gives you um, a better idea. So excavations, proper excavations began mid-December and the first objects were removed from the tomb in January 1923. It took a year to reach the, the external sarcophagus. The mummy of Tutankhamun, along with the famous mask, were um, only <coughs> revealed three years after the discovery of the tomb. The last objects were taken out of the tomb in 1930 and were only sent to Cairo in the spring of 1932, ten years after the discovery. So that gives you an idea as well of the scale of the discovery. And yet, even though there was very little to see, the Valley of the King became a magnet drawing unprecedented crowds of official visitors, persistent members of the press and ordinary tourists. And this was the first curse of Tutankhamun, overwhelming popularity. Carter and his team had to contend with constant pressure from those who, because of their influence, their position or their social connections, felt that they were entitled to special treatment and to a tour of the tomb, of the lab that had been set up in the nearby tomb of Cephas II, or of both. The so this is an example of the letters that kept coming in requesting uh, tours of the tomb. Um, now, the visitors sent by the government or the antiquities department couldn't really be turned away. The visitors with introductions from Lord Carnarvon had to be given special attention, and the visitors endorsed by the Metropolitan Museum also had to be given special attention. The Queen of the Belgians was a very frequent visitor, and um, I quote, a blotting reason. The tomb of Tutankhamun became the focus of esoteric theories and very, very strange suggestions, such as this one um, by an American citizen who um, wrote, would it not be a gracious, a kindly thing and a very diplomatic thing to do for the British government and the Egyptian government to salute with military honours the remain and tomb of one of Egypt's rulers just discovered? The Eastern Department of the Foreign Office dismissed it with a very casual external evidence would point out to his being the possessor of a weak mind. <laughs> but it's a good example of what Carter and his team had to deal with. Even in Parliament, questions started flying, like this one from Sir Harry Britton, the MP for Acton, not too far, not too far from here, who wanted to know whether Tutankhamun would be allowed to remain in what he desired to be his final resting place. And... One from Mr. Hardy, the MP for Springburn, who wanted to know whether the government had any proof that the real Tutankhamun had been found. So the reply of the Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, as you can see here, was somewhat flat. I have no official knowledge that the body of his late majesty is in the sarcophagus. But questions started flying, flying around from everywhere. And Ed Carter had agreed to a first press view of the, uh, of the antechamber at the end of December. And when the clearing began, he found information management extremely hard going. And his natural impatience was really aggravated by the intense interest in the discovery. But it was the first discovery of this kind. No one had experienced it before, so no one really knew what would happen. And 
Well, what happened is that he was desperate to keep the press, the archaeologists, and the tourists at bay. And this unleashed the second curse of Tutankhamun, unstable politics. And when France and Britain had signed the Entente Cordiale in 1904, it had been determined that, or decided that the post of Director, Director General of Antiquities in Egypt shall continue, as in the past, to be entrusted to a French savant. So Egyptology remained a French prerogative, a prerogative that Pierre Lacour, the Director of Antiquities at the time, was really not prepared to let go of. Tutankhamun was difficult to accept for the French because it suddenly portrayed to the French the image of an Egyptological scene on which the British took the lead role of a science which unexpectedly had ceased to be French. So Lacour didn't actually do anything directly against Carter, but he certainly didn't help. And he proved absolutely inflexible in his conviction that the treasure uh, as a whole should remain in Egypt. And a Carter, who'd, who had a reputation for being a bit quick-tempered and a bit petulant, proved just as inflexible in his conviction that Carnarvon should, at the very least, get financial compensation. And he wrote that Lacco's methods of administration were a, uh, a threat to the whole future of archaeology in Egypt. Strong words. Um, <coughs> in the autumn of 1922, about three weeks before the discovery of the tomb, and that's quite important because it shows that it was not a reactive measure after the discovery of the tomb, Three weeks before the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun, um, Lacour had announced that the 1912 law on antiquities was going to be changed. According to the 1912 law, the excavators received either half the fines or half of its value. But the change stipulated that it was, I quote, common justice that historical monuments and masterpieces of art should remain in the country as the evidence of its greatness and civilization. So basically, Lacour thought that any significant archaeological discovery should remain in Egypt as part of its historical heritage, which obviously makes a lot of sense for us now, but didn't make uh, much sense for excavators at the time. Um, now, Carter's team was truly impressive, but rather unlikely to um, get on well with Lacour. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum people were naturally opposed to any change in the law, Breasted and Gardiner were very opposed to Lacour's ideas and to the modification in the division of the fines. And Percy Newberry was once described as a frantic gallophobe, so hardly a gathering of people likely to, um, to get on well with the French director of antiquities. On the 9th of March 1924, after, after a, a bit of a battle, Carter finally had to sign a declaration stating... I hereby declare that I for myself have never made, do not now make, and never intend to make any claim against the Egyptian government or anyone else to any of the objects found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. So the so-called treasure was therefore to remain in Egypt as a whole. Newbery thought it was due to French intrigues, and Gardner claimed that Lacour had harassed Carter, made his job absolutely impossible while he should have sided with him in the name of science. Now, Anglo-French Anglo rivalry had always been very strong on the banks of the Nile, but this was very different from what had happened in the 19th century. It no longer was rivalry based on nationality. The British in the Antiquities Service had sided with Laco. It was clearly just a change, a change in politics and a change in time. 
Fortunately for Egypt and unfortunately for Qatar, Lacour was, was strongly backed by the young nationalist Egyptian government, who was really eager to extricate Egypt from, from a European imperialism which had reached as far as the remnants of, um, of its ancient history. In February 1922, so again, not that long before the discovery of the tomb, the High Commissioner in Egypt, Lord Allenby, had sent Sultan Fouad, the ruler of Egypt, a declaration to Egypt stating the British protectorate over Egypt is terminated and Egypt is declared to be an independent sovereign state. In March, the Sultan had been proclaimed king under the name of Fouad I and in his message to the nation, the king wished that the constitutional change, so from Sultan to king, might be seen as the promising start of a prosperous era which shall restore to Egypt the memory of her glorious past. So Tutankhamun, as you can imagine, was immediately adopted and he, for the Egyptians, he represented the, the power and the magic of ancient Egypt. He was a symbol of geographical consistency and historical continuity and he really crystallised the, hope the, the, the hopes of the nation Carter and, Con and Conarvin didn't really see these changes, these political changes in Egypt. And they had made a first major political blunder by giving an, by giving an exclusive to the Times in the hope of limiting intrusions from the press. So basically the Times um, was granted a monopoly of news on the discovery and would pass on the information to other newspapers after their articles um, had been published for £5,000 and 75% of revenues generated by the sale of articles. So it kind of makes sense from a financial and practical point of view. The agreement was modelled on the agreement that had been signed between the Royal Geographical Society and the Times at the time of the Everest ex uh, expedition in 1921, and it had worked really well. Um, but the conditions in Luxor was were, were very different. When it looks all was no Mount Everest, it wasn't a remote, isolated place. It was already a very touristy town with hotels, with telephones and telegraph lines. And this, ag this agreement with the Times, which was supposed to bring the team much needed relief, um, only resulted in alienating the press all around the world, and most particularly, as you can imagine, the native Egyptian press, who was naturally sensitive to the Egyptian nature of the discovery and to the fact that it was in all respect managed by foreigners. It was agreed that the Egyptian press should get free access to the information while other newspapers had to pay, but still it wasn't enough to quell popular anger and a sort of press guerrilla started um, to try to circumvent the Times embargo. And a very international group started bombarding the excavation teams with complaints and demands they were canvassing LACO and the Antiquities Service to get fresh information. They were stimulating the Egyptian press so that they would express their, their outrage more vocally. Um, in October 1923, the Times correspondent, Arthur Merton, was officially embedded into the excavation team to try to, um, uh, to calm things down, but, that, but it was too late. The Egyptian Minister of Public Works, Marcus Hanna, did his very best to drive the team away from the tomb. And things really accelerated in 1924. The, the lid of the sarcophagus was to be lifted on the 12th of February, and a press visit had been scheduled on the 13th. 
Carter requested permission to lead a private visit for the wives of his team members after the press visit. And this was denied on the morning of the 13th. And Carter was absolutely furious. He thought it was unfair. And he didn't understand why the wives of his collaborators wouldn't, um, couldn't see the tomb. Now, the, pre the press visit went ahead, but he, he then pinned a note in the entrance hall of the, uh, the Winter Palace in Luxor, uh, which was at the time the best um, hotel in town. Owing to impossible restrictions and discourses on the part of the, the Public Works Department and its antiquity service, he wrote, all my collaborators in protest have refused to work any further upon the scientific investigations of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. I therefore am obliged to make known to the public that immediately after the press view of the tomb this morning, between 10, 10 a.m. and noon, the tomb will be closed and no further work can be carried out. So he was closing the tomb altogether and launching what may well be the very first archaeological strike. Now, apart from the fact that it was a breach of contract, because he had signed a, a contract saying that he would work on the tomb, um, it was a massive error of judgment. Well, at first, he'd left the upper lid of the sarcophagus dangling at the end of ropes, which might have snapped at any moment. So I, I mean, it's a very heavy granite sar sarcophagus. wouldn't have been pretty. And again, he had chosen to ignore the change in Egyptian politics. And this was summed up very well in an article published in nationalist newspaper Al-Balakh. The article said that Egypt had suffered enough from this foreigner who, under the nose of the Egyptian public and of a high official of the government, closes the tomb of Pharaoh as though it were the tomb of, its own, uh, of his own father. The tomb basically was not his to close down and Lacour seized it on behalf of the Egyptian government. Carter was banned from entering it. The discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun was, really was the meeting or merging or, or, or of national or nationalist sentiment and a more acute conscience of national heritage. Tutankhamun was instantly adopted as a unifying national symbol. He was seen as the proof that Egyptians belonged to one of the oldest civilizations in the world. He strengthened nationalist solidarity, um, the, the common identity theme that had been at the basis of the 1919 revolution. The Pharaonic era was way, obviously way before the arrival of the first Christians or, or the first Muslims uh, in, in Egypt. So both the Coptic and the Muslim components of the Egyptian society could find, um, could find themselves in Tutankhamun and could find in Tutankhamun the basis of a of a common, purely Egyptian um, identity. So really, Carter and his team chose to ignore the imperialist, colonial context in which Egyptology had developed as a science and couldn't or wouldn't understand that it was absolutely vital to shed this pre-war attitude um, to make things work in Egypt. Now, the interest, one of the reasons why um, why the overwhelming popularity led to, to political blunders was the intensity of the interest that the tomb of Tutankhamun um, um, triggered. And, and this interest was stimulated, at least in part, by a kind of morbid curiosity, um, partly fostered by the, by the, the, um, the rumours that, that started circulating of an ancient curse 
leading to the death of anyone getting too close to Pharaoh. And this was the third curse of Tutankhamun, the curse of the curse. I'm sure you've heard about the curse. Everyone has heard about the curse. You may not know anything about Tutankhamun, but you probably know the curse. Um, on the 5th of April 1923, Lord Carnarvon died at the Continental Hotel in Cairo. He'd been bitten by a mosquito on the cheek, shaved the bite, and um, he had got infected, and so he died of septicemia. Um, on the 7th of April, as a tribute to his work, the Times published an article he'd written himself, and Carnarvon complained bitterly about the press and the endless stream of visitors. He begged that the excavators be allowed to proceed with their work without interference and in peace. But by then, this peace was utterly impossible to achieve, partly due to his death. Ancient Egypt had um, always been perceived as, and probably still is perceived, as full of mysteries and dark magic. And the tomb was full of strange figures and um, slightly threatening ones, mysterious shrines and statues. But the death of Lord Carnarvon really fueled the idea that an ancient curse had been unleashed. And it was said that at the precise moment of his death, all the lights in Cairo went out, and that in the High Clear Castle, his favorite dog howled to death. To death. Um, newspapers around the world blamed his death, and that of his dog, on the curse of Tutankhamun. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was well known for his belief in the occult, announced that Carnarvon's death could have been caused by a curse. A necromancer, self-describing as an archaeologist, issued a story to the press saying that there had been a curse carved on a stone at the entrance of a tomb, reading, let the hands raised against my form be withered, let them be destroyed who attack my name, my foundation, my effigies, the image like unto me. Another paper reported on a very specific curse written on the second door of the shrine. They who enter this sacred tomb shall swift be visited by the wing of death. Another journalist had heard of a rather mild admonition by the Anubis shrine, um, which reads, it is, it is I who hinder the sand from choking the secret chamber. I am for the protection of the deceased. But then the journalist added, and I will kill all those who cross this threshold into the sacred precincts of the royal king who lives forever. Be of poetic license, maybe? <laughs> um, it was also suspected that Carnarvon had pricked his finger on some sharp object containing a poison so strong that it could have lasted 3,000 years. On top of it, when Dr. Douglas Derry examined the mummy for the first time, he found a, a mark on the face of Tutankhamun, which the Morning Post described as being in exactly the same position as the insect bite which had killed Carnarvon. Some newspapers began listing the death of anyone connected to the tomb, um, however tenuous the connection was. Um, Mace was dying of some strange disease. The friend of a tourist who'd entered the tomb was run over by a taxi in Cairo. Some Egyptologist died of old age. Lord Carnarvon's secretary died in his bed. His father um, committed suicide. A surgeon died while arranging to x-ray a mummy, although not that of Tutankhamun or any member of his family. An American bloke called Dr. Carter suddenly died. Um, an Egyptian prince was murdered in London by his French mistress. And a Carter pet cannery was gobbled up by a cobra. <laughs> and as the story spread, there were instances of 
near hysteria um, all over the world. Hundreds of people in the UK packed up and shipped to the British Museum any scrap of Egyptian antiquity they had, including a mummified arm. And as several American politicians suggested mummies in all museums should be investigated just to make sure. <laughs> now everyone, of course, everyone likes the idea of a curse, so a curse is very attractive. Um, and it's a bit pointless to produce counter-arguments, but, well, still. So there were curses in the tomb. Well, apart from the admonition by the Anubis Shrine, there was no written curse in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Curses were rather infrequent uh, in tombs anyway. There are examples of threats, but usually directed at people who might be tempted to embezzle the, the funds um, provided for guards and maintenance people. And these threats are very rarely directed at thieves, um, although there are some examples. Um, so, no. Carter's canary bird was eaten by a cobra, which proves there was a curse, surely. So the story is that Carter's pet canary, the, the golden bird that brought luck to the team, was eaten by a cobra on the very day the tomb was discovered. I mean, cobras can be found in Egypt, they, they do exist, and in ancient Egypt, the cobra was associated with the goddesses Wadjet, who was the, the eye of Ra, the, the royal Eros one on the brow of the pharaoh, the face on their, on their headdress. It was also associated with um, goddess Meret Seger, who protected the Valley of the Kings. But you know, I guess, you know, canaries are very cute, but in the eyes of cobras, they're, they're probably also very delicious. In any case, Carter gave his pet canary to his friend Minnie Burton to look after while he was working. And so, as far as I know, the fateful meeting with the cobra never took place. Now, Carnarvon was killed by the curse. Carnarvon, you have to bear in mind, came to Egypt because he, because he was ill. Actually, a lot of people went to Egypt because they were ill, uh, because the climate is much nicer. Well, it's hot, it's dry, it's, you know, it's everything the UK is not. So, and he died of septicemia. All the lights in Cairo went out, which proves there was a curse. Well, even today, I mean, even today, all the lights going out in Cairo is not an uncommon thing. So all the lights may well have gone out at the precise moment of his death, but, you know, it doesn't really prove anything. His son said his dog in Highclere um, howled at the precise moment of his death. Well, surely it proves there was a curse, because how is that possible? But his son, Lord Porchester, was in Cairo at the time. He'd been called back from India where he was serving when it was clear that his father would pass away. So, you know, it's difficult to say. I don't think it's valid. A lot of people connected to the tomb died, which proves there was a curse. Well, a lot of people died for sure, but... As I said, most people at the time who travelled to Egypt were travelling to Egypt for health reasons. And amongst those most intimately connected to the tomb, Alan Gardiner um, survived. He died in 1963, aged 84. Carnarvon's daughter, Lady Evelyn, died in 1980, aged 79. Photographer Harry Burton died in 1940, aged 61. Uh, Alfred Luckers died in 1945, at, um, at 78. And even Carter, surely the most obvious target, um, survived until 1939. So, no. <laughs> so sadly, the curse is even today probably better known than Tutankhamun himself and, and Howard Carter. 
when the late Lord Carnarvon was asked about the curse in an interview in, in, on NBC television in uh, 1977, he replied that he neither believed it, neither disbelieved it, but that he wouldn't accept a million pounds to enter the tomb. So sometimes I wonder what Tutankhamun would have made of all the intrigues and all the mysteries surrounding uh, the discovery of his tomb. And that most likely he'd have shrugged and said those words engraved, well, really engraved this time, um, on the wall of his golden shrine. I have seen yesterday, I know tomorrow. Thank you very much. This talk is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. Visit our website to discover more talks and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for news and updates from the National Archives.